Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, shrimping and shrimp boat building have been important industries in St. Augustine for more than a century. We'll talk with maritime historian Brendan Burke, co-author of the book Shrimp Boat City. It's a story, it's our hometown story. It was born, matured, and arguably is in its decline in our town. It involved all the old names, all the people that you get to know talking with St. Augustinians. And unlike a lot of other things that we know of in Florida history, it's uniquely Florida. We'll discuss WPA photographs of a conch settlement in Riviera Beach. It's kind of a great representation of uh, the mixing of different cultures and, and ideas in this part of Florida in the early 20th century. And we'll talk about the lynching of World War I veteran Oscar Mack. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Here comes the shrimp boat to take me There's something distinctively Floridian about watching shrimp boats trawling our coastal waters, particularly in the northeastern part of the state. Maritime historian Brendan Burke is co-author of the book Shrimp Boat City, 100 Years of Catching Shrimp and Building Boats in St. Augustine, the nation's oldest port. The book is published by the St. Augustine Lighthouse and Museum. As Burke explains, the shrimping industry in Florida began in Fernandina Beach and St. Augustine. The shrimping industry got started like any great enterprise. It wasn't one person, one thing, really one place. Uh, it was a conspiracy of circumstance that a will named one person, Mike Salvador, kind of assembled. He was an architect. Uh, he was a fisherman. He was a mariner. Uh, he was an entrepreneur. And in Fernandina, in the first decade of the 20th century, he assembled what I would consider to be the greatest maritime chapter in Florida's state history. It spanned from about 1900 until the 1980s. It caused well more than a billion dollars worth of fishing tonnage to be built in this state. It impacted the lives of thousands of people, directly or indirectly, 23 countries worldwide, and started a food way that we now know and all participate in uh, that in the, la in the previous century was unknown. The shrimping industry in Northeast Florida expanded and evolved quickly with the emphasis gradually shifting from catching shrimp to building the boats to do it. St. Augustine uh, is a cousin in many ways to Fernandina where we're cousins uh, along with lots of other shrimping ports. St. Augustine has one of the oldest connections to commercial shrimping. It has also a, a deep connection to the building of shrimp vessels, shrimp fishing vessels, shrimp trawlers we'll call them. Uh, a really iconographic part of American fishing tradition. Uh, everybody has the concept of a shrimp trawler in their head. If you, if you grew up within 200 miles of the coast, you know what one looks like in the southeast. Uh, you know, we go to the beach and we see them offshore, but most people know so little about them. And they really help drive this region's economy in, the north, in northeast Florida uh, for so many years. And you know, when fishing and boat building was down in some port towns, crime was up. You know, that's, that's something I've heard 
time and time again from people that lived through the heyday of commercial shrimping in this area. Families from diverse cultural backgrounds were part of the birth and growth of Florida's shrimping industry in the early to mid 20th century. Brendan Burke. That's where you have a really profound tale of the American dream being told writ large. You have African-American families that are getting into the enterprise in fish houses as labor on the boats and as owners of some of the boats. You have Greek immigrant families that are building boats, mostly in Fernandina and St. Augustine, but other places as well, Tarpon Springs. You have uh, Italian families, immigrant families, that are coming either directly from Italy or trans-migrating from uh, places up north like the Fulton Fish Market up in New York which was a critical part of the infrastructure to get rid of shrimp. You, you know, catching them is half the battle. You've got to sell them uh, for the enterprise. So you have all these families that move to the region, but they bring something with them. And each of those talents conspired to form the modern commercial shrimping business. By the 1940s and 50s, really post-war years, you have a boom in it because we have labor returning from the battlefields. We have the American production system that was at its highest point ever and probably in, in the country's history, able to produce wire, produce copper tubing, to produce diesel engines, all the stuff you need for a shrimp boat. And we have now know how to eat it, uh, how to eat shrimp. Shrimp were mostly an ethnic food prior to the 1920s, 30s, 40s. You, maybe you would have heard of a shrimp cocktail in the big cities. But if you're in Omaha, or if you're in Des Moines, or if you're in Topeka, uh, you probably didn't eat shrimp habitually. After the war, you had all these young men and women who traveled around the country, around the world. They'd gone to training camps like the Coast Guard facility in St. Augustine. They'd been in the Navy, and they had met other people and learned to do strange things like eat shrimp. So that changed. The war changed us in many ways, but it changed what we've put on our plates. And St. Augustine and a lot of other port towns started to supply that need, catching shrimp and then getting them out in the distribution networks that was the rail system, the tr transportation system that really blossomed because of interstate travel in the 50s and 60s. As the catching shrimp side of the industry faded in St. Augustine, boat building continued to thrive here into the late 20th century. So St. Augustine was a major port for catching shrimp really only at about the 1920s and 30s. There was a diaspora of fishing vessels that left St. Augustine in the 30s that went to Morgan City, Louisiana. They went all over the Gulf Coast. Uh, they went over to Fort Myers uh, to expand for lots of reasons. Number one, we, were we had more demand for shrimp, and so we needed to find richer fishing grounds. So they went to the Bay of Campeche off Mexico. They went to, after the pink shrimp boom in the 1940s and 50s, uh, down off the dry Tortugas. But what stayed in St. Augustine, and this was really king for that area, was the ability to build the boats that supplied the fleets. And so between 1919 and 1985, I can account for about 3,500 boats that were built in town that went all over the place. And I mentioned 23 countries around the world we built boats for. We shipped them out almost by the dozen. They were rarely built on speculation. They were a well-known quantity. And during the heyday, Desco, diesel engine sales company, their motto was the sun never sets on a Desco boat. And that's a pretty bold statement to make but it's not bragging because it was true. And you know, it sounds a lot like the sun never sets on the British Empire, uh, but it was true. And it probably in some ways still is true today. And that's a legacy that Florida has left on global fishing and global foodways.
Brendan Burke is a maritime historian with the St. Augustine Lighthouse Archaeological Maritime Program, or LAMP. He co-wrote the book Shrimp Boat City with Ed Long. He worked in and around the industry uh, for most of his professional life. He was in the Coast Guard. Uh, he was always on the water, always on the docks. And he saw and met and heard the people, the things, the stories of the industry. And in the 1980s, he realized that he was seeing fewer people, hearing fewer stories, and seeing less boats. So something transformative was happening, and the industry was in decline. It was dying. And so he went around and started collecting those stories, the names, the important bones of the architecture that forms the, the history of commercial shrimping and boat building in St. Augustine specifically to form what is now Shrimp Boat City. And we call it the beginning of a conversation. It's not the culmination of a research project that tells you everything that happened. Because if you want to find out about history, write a book on it and everybody floods in and tells you who you left out, what you got wrong, you know, all of the chapters that weren't in there. And so I like to think of it as the beginning of that conversation that just keeps going. Uh, and it will outlast, if, if I'm lucky, it will outlast both me and Ed. It's something that will help preserve the history. Ed had, not, had noticed no one had done that. We started working together in 2013. I was already into the history uh, and realized that we would co-author this book and bring the resources that the museum had to bear and his knowledge, uh, and now we have Shrimp Boat City. So uh, we're, we're proud that it's out there. We've gone through two editions now, and uh, I hope it's inspired others to record their family stories. And as everybody at museums always says, we want your stories. Uh, we are the vouchsafes and free insurance for family history. If you'll share that with us, uh, if somebody dies or, you know, God forbid the house burns down or floods, if we have copies of your pictures, your stories and all of that, it's free insurance for those. A few decades after commercial shrimping declined in St. Augustine, it started to fade from American waters in general. The major decline in American fishing, shrimp fishing itself, really started in the late 1960s, early 70s. There was still a boom throughout the 1970s, for sure. I mean, there were more boats in the 1970s fishing American waters for shrimp than any other period before or since. But we had more imported shrimp coming in as well. The American demand for shrimp in some ways outgrew its ability to provide those levels of shrimp. Uh, that's arguable. Uh, but what is not arguable is that today, if you put 10 shrimp on a plate, only one of them will be wild-caught American shrimp. The other nine will be imported from aquaculture abroad, uh, some wild-caught abroad. Uh, and those aren't shrimp that, um, that necessarily have a history. When you eat local shrimp, you know the quality of them. They come from our oceans that we know the quality of. And when it comes from a foreign place, there's nothing wrong with foreign food. But if it's not produced in a place where the labor, you can vouch for that quality of labor and the environment, uh, it's not necessarily good food. And there's a dramatic difference in taste as well. Even though the shrimping industry has declined in St. Augustine in the later 20th and early 21st centuries, Burke says the shrimping culture does still exist. There are boats still fishing uh, right now. Uh, the fleet is probably down to about a tenth of its height during the 1970s. You know, St. Augustine now has six or seven shrimp boats, not many in comparison to the, the old days where you could walk across the San Sebastian River on boats, just hopping from rail to rail, you know, and people used to talk about playing on boats as a kid and crossing the river on boats. Uh, boats jockeying to find a place to tie up. They had trouble, you know, with parking, in essence, on the San Sebastian River. Uh, those days are gone. The fish houses 
are gone. They were never meant to last, uh, but the industry is, and that is going away, and it's something that uh, it's critical that we remember, number one, who it was and what it was, but also try to support our local fisheries in sustaining who they are. In addition to publishing the book Shrimp Boat City, the St. Augustine Lighthouse and Museum has an exhibit on the local shrimping industry. There is. We have an exhibit at the St. Augustine Lighthouse and Maritime Museum. It's in the Keeper's House. It's one of our many exhibits, and it focuses on the early days and the growth of modern American shrimping and boat building in St. Augustine, Florida. Uh, it's a story. It's our hometown story. It was born, matured, and arguably is in its decline in our town. It involved all the old names, all the people that you get to know uh, talking with St. Augustinians. Uh, and unlike a lot of other things that we know of in Florida history, it's uniquely Florida. While the shrimping industry has probably peaked in St. Augustine, Brendan Burke is hopeful that it will never completely go away. If I say it's gonna die out in St. Augustine, they won't let me back in the city gates. Uh, I certainly hope it won't. Uh, we need to see, for the health of our community, we need to see commercial fishing vessels going in and out of the inlet. They never have stopped doing that since 1565. Uh, that's been part of our culture. That's been part of Florida. Uh, you know, we're a big peninsula. Uh, we need to have and maintain our relationship with the sea as a healthy one. And so reinvesting in commercial fisheries with the technology, advancements uh, that we can make to keep that fishery going forward is going to be important not just for commercial fishing, but our investment with the sea. Maritime historian Brendan Burke and Ed Long are co-authors of the book Shrimp Boat City, 100 Years of Catching Shrimp and Building Boats in St. Augustine, the nation's oldest port. Here come the shrimp boat port to take me to Louisiana. Here come the shrimp boat port to take me to Louisiana. Here come the shrimp boat This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org, where you can shop for great books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, and watch episodes of our public television series, Florida Frontiers. While you're there, you can subscribe to our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. Photographs and memories Christmas cards you sent to me All that I have are these To remember you When we think of the WPA documenting Florida culture in the 1930s, we usually think of recorded interviews or typed transcripts, but photographs were also used to document culture. WPA photographs were taken of a conch settlement in Florida. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, before we talk about these photographs, who were the conch people? Well, the term conch is generally ascribed to a group of settlers who came from England, specifically from London, 
and settled in the Bahamas beginning in the mid-1600s. And there was kind of a steady flow of immigration throughout the next few centuries in and around the islands up through about the American Revolutionary period. So the the end of the 18th century, there were a few thousand people that that lived on the islands. And most of those people eked out a living, uh, small farming operations, but primarily they lived off of the sea. They were fishermen and there were small communities dotted throughout the throughout the island region. And the relationship between the settlers there in the Bahamian Islands and Florida are, are quite strong. And uh, there are connections throughout the centuries going all the way back to the 1600s. Now, when the Spanish took over Florida in 1783, the British were, of course, pushed out after the American Revolution. And many of those loyalists who had been living in Florida made a living and, and made a life in the Bahamas. Uh, so they moved just uh, across the Gulf Stream, uh, settled in the Bahamas. And it wasn't until later that uh, there was a wave of immigrants coming back to Florida after Florida became a U.S. territory in the mid-19th century. Now, when we think of conchs, we we generally think of Key West, but this particular settlement was in Riviera Beach, right? That's correct. So Riviera Beach is settled in uh, Palm Beach County, and it's right on the shores of Lake Worth, the estuary system that kind of separates the Barrier Island, Singer Island, from the Atlantic Ocean. And a lot of the early settlers, as I said earlier, came back to Florida uh, from the Bahamas in about the early uh, 20th century. So beginning uh, in the early 1900s, 1910, 1911, and they really kind of uh, came in, in large numbers in the 1920s. And that was really due to a lot of reasons. Essentially, it was kind of a sharp decline in economic prospects in the Bahamas at that time. A lot of the soil had kind of been used up and it was very difficult for these people to make a living. So thousands of these people made their way to Florida. And you're right, you mentioned uh, Key West. We think about conch settlers living and and settling around uh, the Keys and specifically Key West. And there was certainly a large contingent of those immigrants that came to Key West. But there was also a small community of about 75 to 100 families who settled in Riviera. What is now Riviera Beach was known then as, as simply as Riviera. The town incorporated in 1922, and that was really just to stave off annexation from the uh, bordering town of West Palm Beach. But they remained a very close, tight-knit community of mainly these conch settlers, those who were descendants from the the original English settlers on the Bahamian Islands. Uh, They were fishermen. They brought those skills and that lifestyle to this part of Palm Beach County, and they set up these these small communities. And that's kind of what we're looking at today is evidence, at least, of that community. So by the time the WPA came into Riviera and started interviewing some of these early families, um, they had been living there for about a generation. Uh, So you had the next generation kind of learning the skills that were brought over from the Bahamas about how to fish and how to repair nets and how to build boats, but also some of these wonderful folk tales and songs. Stetson Kennedy, the the famous uh, anthropologist who was involved with the WPA and was uh, at one point supervisor of a lot of the folklore recordings, actually traveled to Riviera and recorded some of these, and and they survive today. So we have this wonderful, very rich view of what their life was like. And it's very interesting because it's kind of a mixing of Caribbean culture, traditional English culture, all coming into Florida. So it's kind of a great representation of uh, the mixing of different cultures and, and ideas in this part of Florida in the early 20th century. Now, these photographs were not originally published with the WPA Guide to Florida in the 1930s. How did these images come to light? 
Well, this is kind of a fascinating story in itself. So what we're looking at is, is about 10 images. They're, they're prints that are pasted to a typed collection of captions. So each photograph has a caption of who's in the photograph, uh, the date it was taken. Uh, this particular collection was all taken in November of 1938. Who took the photographs uh, and kind of what the context is, why this is important, what we're looking at. So we have photos of men standing around the docks. Uh, we have men working on fishing nets. We have fishing boats that are coming in into the harbor uh, in Riviera. Era. We have some great examples of what a typical house looks like. In fact, we have two great examples, one of which in, in the caption it says here, quote, a better class Riviera home. Uh, and then if we go a few pages in, we see, quote, a lower class Riviera home. And you can see that she describes uh, the, the photographer describes in detail what that meant. We also have a great image of the local church, and then she talks a bit about some of the religious practices that were brought over from uh, the Bahamas and, and settled into the, this Riviera culture. But one of the greatest photos uh, that we have here is of Mr. and Mrs. Roberts. And Wilbur Roberts was kind of the, the center of the community. At this time in 1938, when the photo was taken, uh, he was in his 80s, but he was born uh, in the Bahamas. He grew up and, and uh, spent his entire life essentially fishing and turtling around that area. They immigrated with his wife wife and children in the early 1900s with that first wave, and they settled first on Singer Island, were later pushed off and then ended up in Riviera. And it's just a great photograph of the couple standing together. At this point, Wilbur Roberts is completely blind, but he's still the center of the community. He, he kind of holds all of this institutional knowledge, if you will. He recorded quite a few songs and some stories with Stetson Kennedy, but he also spent a lot of time with this photographer. Her name was Veronica Huss. And Veronica got a job with the WPA. Uh, she was living in LaBelle, Florida, and essentially grew up in poverty. And a lot of these people, too, it's evident just how poor and how difficult it was for people to make a living at this time. Uh, but she spent about a year in the area living with the Roberts family, uh, taking photographs, and, and she put together a really wonderful volume of their stories, of their life. And it's a lifestyle that has um, all but disappeared at this point. Unfortunately, uh, in the late 1930s and early 1940s, when the uh, WPA, the Federal Writers Project, put together their guide series for Florida, the, the guide to the southernmost state, uh, we have only a, a paragraph or two that kind of briefly describes who the Conks were living in Riviera, a little bit about what they were doing for a living. But all of this material that Veronica and some other ethnographers, and uh, who, what they had collected was essentially lost for, for several decades until the early 1990s, when one of the photographers who had accompanied Veronica on one of these trips, a man named Charles Foster, uh, finally compiled all of the photographs that he had taken uh, and had never really done anything with. This is after he had retired and decided to put out a wonderful book. And uh, it was published in, in 1991 uh, entitled Conktown USA. And it's a, a kind of a coffee table style book, but it takes you through this little period in, in Florida's history inside of a very small, unique community that has uh, since disappeared. So um, by combining these unpublished resources with some of the published resources, we get kind of a fuller idea of, of what this small, very unique community and uh, what their place in Florida history really Really was. Well, some fascinating images and stories, Ben. Thanks a lot. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Photographs and memories. This is Florida Frontiers. Florida had more lynchings per capita than any other southern state between the years 1880 to 1940. Holly Baker is a graduate student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida. She has the story of Oscar Mack, a World War I veteran who was lynched in Florida. 
Oscar Mack was an African-American veteran of World War I who was in Kissimmee, Florida. He was honorably discharged, came back to Kissimmee and bid on a contract for uh, delivery of mail for the rail depot to the post office and won the bid. And this was quite controversial. He received a threatening note from the KKK saying don't show up for work and he did show up for work and subsequent after that his boss a guy named C.C. Collins gave him a gun and said if anyone gives you a problem use this gun. That was Dr. Julian Chambliss professor of history and coordinator of the African-American studies program at Rollins College in Orlando. I sat down with him to talk about the story of Oscar Mack an African-American World War I veteran who is said to have been lynched in Kissimmee in 1922. Dr. Chambliss tells us what happened after Oscar Mack was given a gun by his employer after he was threatened by the Ku Klux Klan. Two men came to his house, uh, he opened fire, and both of those men subsequently, one died at the scene, one died later, and he went on the run, but they reported that he was hung. A man believed to be Oscar Mack was hung at Lake Jane Jewel. That is as much as made to the public record, that newspaper headline and, and some other stories that we found later. But for the most part, it's a racial incident that was mostly forgotten, in part because there were, in that period, like, so there was the Acoli riot that was the year before, and of course there was Rosewood, and those are, of course, major historical events that people know of. And so at some level, the Oscar Mack case sort of fell through the cracks as a sort of, like, historical point. In his African-American history classes at Rollins College, Dr. Chambliss and his students engage in community-based research, highlighting the experiences of black Floridians. Dr. Chambliss tells us more about the class's goal to uncover the story of Oscar Mack. The class became about trying to expand on that narrative, like who was Oscar Mack, where did he come from, why was he hung? And that's where we started. The research project for the class was to sort of like flesh out the story. And so we were able to find the Kissimmee Gazette, which was the weekly that was published in Kissimmee, and we were able to sort of flesh out the story, like the immediate story, right, where instead of this really short paragraph that described the lynching, uh, we, are, we started to get the sort of the cause. He had been competing for a job, and we found out that he had been threatened by the Klan. By the end of the semester, we had created a, a kind of fuller narrative of the Oscar Mack incident. The class ended with some unresolved questions. What really happened to Oscar Mack? Where was his death certificate? Dr. Chambliss continued investigating and discovered that there was more to the story. The rest of the story is that while the news reports were that Oscar Mack had been lynched, it turned out that he had escaped. A lot of details were revealed, like the, the name of the man who attacked, like the postmaster. The fact that Oscar Mack escaped, we know he got away because his family contacted us and said, we've always had this family story of our uncle, Lanier Johnson was his name, but he used to go by a different name, and he said his name was Oscar Mack, and now we know what happened, right? Because he died without telling us the full story. We've always had like this family lore about him having this different life and this different name, and he was living under this assumed name and died under that assumed name. And in fact, we were able to go up to Cleveland, Ohio, where they, they laid down a, a new tombstone with his true name and his assumed name. If not for Dr. Chambliss and his African-American history class, the story of Oscar Mack might have been forgotten. They went from this little bitty paragraph saying, like, this man named Oscar Mack was killed 
to a huge narrative of like who he was, that he was a veteran, the racial landscape of Central Florida for African Americans, the, the tension around African American rights coming from veterans like him, and they can sort of like characterize him as a person based on like these sort of broader trends in society, and they were able to identify like all these people that were in the story, the sheriff, the postmaster that hired him, the guy who gave him the gun, and of course the president of the Klan, and like the, the sort of active nature of the Klan as a, as, a, as a group in Central Florida, and like, you know, its power. And they're able to weave that into a narrative that really expanded on that, that initial very small story, even though after that class we learned so much more. For Florida Frontiers, I am Holly Baker a public history graduate student at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and follow us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.